Good morning, church. I have to be honest, I woke up this morning, the first thought I had was, God, I really don't want to preach on Romans 13 today. I mean, Romans 13 is a difficult passage to interpret and preach on any Sunday, but after the last couple of weeks in in Washington, I, I really, really don't want to do it. But here we are, and um, you may disagree uh, with me this morning, that's okay, won't be the first time, uh, or the last, I'm sure, and, and, and Romans 13 really is, as, as scholars have struggled with exactly how we do apply this. But if you're like me, when you read the morning paper, uh, you may shake your head and, and think to yourself, these people in Washington are clueless. I read last week that uh, Americans' confidence in our political institutions is at an all-time low. And so there's a good chance that many of you are having the same thoughts that I am this morning. But even if you, if you don't follow the news at all, how many of you might say to yourselves, you know, my, my boss is clueless. If I, were, if I was in charge, not only would it be different, but it'd be better. You see, all of us have different responses when our authorities ask us to do things that we don't agree with or ask us to follow rules that we don't want to follow. And so the question for us this morning is, as a Christian doing work as unto the Lord, how do we deal with those sometimes very real situations? So we're in week seven today of our study on Paul's letter to the Romans and And after discussing the nature of salvation, the first 11 chapters, uh, Paul in chapter 12 begins turning to uh, writing about how we live this out in in our daily living. Uh, So today in chapter 13, he talks about rules to live by. Now, let me give you some context. Uh, Paul wrote this letter to the Romans about 57 A.D. to Christians in Rome who were living under Nero's rule. Now, Nero was a nutcase by any standard. In fact, 14 years later, after Paul wrote this letter, he would take his own life. And so these Christians were living in the very heart of the empire, and their context is much different uh, than ours would be today. He was not writing to 21st century Uh, Americans living under a democratically elected government with civil rights. At that time, Christians were a powerless minority with no rights. In fact, Christianity was not even a, a legal religion. That would take several centuries before that would happen. In fact, as time went by, Rome became less and less patient with Christians and eventually fed them to lions and burned them at the stake. So Paul was writing to a group of of people under a heathen government that was antagonistic towards their religion. But in these verses, Paul uh, lays down some rules that I think can apply to our lives today. And the first thing that Paul says is this. God is the source of all rightful authority. Verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established 
by God. Now, imagine being a Roman Christian and reading these words, hearing Paul say, by the way, this nation, this country, this system that's so antagonistic to your faith, God established it. You need to view Rome as a government that's been established by God. Can you imagine how they felt? Probably the way a lot of us feel today about our politicians, right? You might think, there's no way that, that my president or my congressman or, or my boss has been put into his or her job by God. There's just no way in the world. Pastor, you don't understand my boss. But in history and in our lives, God works through authorities. And Paul says that when we resist authorities, we're actually working against God. That God has established authorities, and we know that oftentimes God is up to something through the authorities in this world. And how oftentimes when we forget that, uh, and this is how God works, we oftentimes miss what God's trying to do. And not only does God work through authority, God even works through heathen and unjust authorities. God directs and God implements His plan in the life of believers through authorities that don't even believe that God exists. In fact, throughout Scripture, we have seen, we find that God is always up to something using the authorities that were in place, yet often nobody knew what God was up to. For example... um, King Cyrus the Great, uh, ruler of the Persian Empire. Now, you may remember from your history that Babylon destroyed Jerusalem and carried the Jewish nation into exile. But when Persia conquered Babylon and Cyrus came to power, he allowed the Jewish people to return to their homeland and even help them to rebuild uh, their temple. And so the Chronicle writes this. He says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. So this was a prophetic word. That the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm. And this is the proclamation. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. And any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord their God be with them. And if you would read the prophet Isaiah, you will see that Isaiah even speaks of Cyrus as God's shepherd and as God's anointed. What? A pagan king, God's shepherd, anointed? How can that be? Jewish people regarded submission to heathen rulers as an affront. They prided themselves on their independence. In fact, in 70 AD, 13 years after Paul wrote this letter, the Jews would revolt against Rome, be crushed by the Roman general Titus, and never be a nation again until about 1947. The Jewish people refused to pay taxes to them. Hence, Jesus was once asked the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Uh, Jews rioted in Rome during Claudius' reign, and he responded by banning every Jew from the capital city. Even more radical, just imagine uh, when God allowed Roman soldiers to manhandle his son, strap him down, and 
nail him to a cross. Even then, God was up to something. I mean, think about it. We're Christ followers today because God used a a heathen government to accomplish his will. And not even the apostles recognized uh, God's hand in all of this when when, uh, uh, Peter pulled out his sword in the garden and and said, I'm going to put a stop to this. Jesus said, Peter, put your sword away. This has to be accomplished. See, Jesus understood that sometimes God works through authority even when we're not sure how he's going to do it. So we can look back in history and, and clearly see God's activity. But then we, we go to work in our own little worlds with our own little details, with our own little issues, and we forget that, that God can even work through our boss, through authority. And when we want to bail out because we don't want to put up with authority, not only do we potentially miss what God is trying to accomplish, but in some human way we might find ourselves thwarting the plan of God. Because Paul says all authority has been established by God. Still with me? Nobody's gotten up and walked out yet? Okay, buckle your seatbelts because Paul's not done. (laughs) It gets even tougher here. He says this, that rebelling against authority brings judgment. Paul writes this, consequently, whoever rebels against, against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you'll be commended. So Paul gives us even more details here. He's kind of like giving you a promise. When you fight against authorities that God has established, you may reap judgment. Now, the difficult thing is that even when you're right, Paul says, there's judgment. So picture your, your, your boss, your manager, your supervisor. Uh, picture your president in your mind, okay? That's God's servant for you. Now you're thinking, no, that, that's, that's Satan. <laughs> you, don't, you don't know my boss, pastor. He, he's the devil. But God says, no, that's my servant. Rome was my servant. And through Rome, I accomplished my plan for the salvation of the world and the spread of Christianity. Cyrus was my servant. Through Cyrus, I I restored a nation. If I can handle Cyrus and if I can handle Rome, then I can handle any authority problem that you have. Now, folks, this goes against my nature. I mean, I'm a baby boomer. I was raised in the 60s. Yeah. Power to the people. Never trust the man. Don't trust anybody under 30. Can't say that anymore, but Paul's not finished. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Verse 6, this is why also you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, 
then respect, and of honor, then honor. So Paul uses taxes as an illustration. Say we've had problems with taxes for as far back as mankind's been around. And they, they weren't simply concerned that taxes were too high. Rather, the Christians couldn't understand why they should give money to Rome when Rome intended to use the, the money to build pagan temples. Worse yet, they were financing their own persecution. They were giving Rome the, the money to pay the military that was putting them in prison. So Paul responds. He says, you're not paying taxes because the taxes are fair. You're paying taxes because Rome has asked you to or told you to. And so if the government established, uh, that God established, asks for a certain amount of money, you, you give them what you owe regardless of what they're going to do with it. You're not responsible for that. You're responsible for being under the authorities that I've established. So again, you may be thinking, you know, I don't have to pay my taxes. I don't have to pay them because the government's funding this and they're supporting that and and God doesn't agree with that. So I don't have to pay my taxes, Pastor. But Paul would disagree. He'd say, "You're, you're right on the issue, but you're wrong in the application." The reason that we pay taxes as Americans is not because we agree with everything the government does with our money, but because God has placed them as authority over us. Now, are there exceptions? Sure. I mean, Paul is talking about a government that that brings justice and order. And when it doesn't, then Christians have a higher duty. I really wish that Paul had gone into detail and and, and, and spell those instructions out and exactly when we don't have to, but, but he doesn't. You know. So here I am. <laughs> but Paul would have known the story of Daniel, who tried to work within the Babylonian government, but when a law was passed forbidding prayer, Daniel could not follow that law. He broke it. He disobeyed it. He was thrown into the lion's den. And certainly Paul would have agreed with Peter and the disciples when they were ordered by the, the Jewish authorities to stop talking about Jesus. And they responded, what is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to God? You be the judges. Human authority is not infallible. And when there's a conflict between our leaders and the commands of God, the word of God requires a total allegiance. And oftentimes there's a consequence to that. One of my grandchildren was recently diagnosed with a reading disorder. And when her mother uh, went to the school to request services, uh, she was denied. You see, the state has certain rules. The state has certain priorities about who gets services and who doesn't. And if you don't fit, then, then you're denied. It's not always about what's best for the student. It's about following their rules. And so now my daughter has become a full-time advocate um, for her daughter. It's become a full-time job. And you parents who have children with special needs, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The government is not always on your side. Well, in verse 8 and following, it appears that, that Paul is jumping off to another topic, like he's having a hard time staying focused. But I think he's actually continuing the theme that he started even back in chapter 12, which is love. And I think what he's saying here is that the overarching, the overriding Christian ethic that governs all of our relationships, our, our politics, our, our church life, our, our family life, he says, is one thing, and that's love. 
How do we love people who are in need? How do we love people who do evil to us? How do we love people who disagree with us? How do we love people who are in authority over us? And, and here's what Paul writes. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Uh, what's he quoting from here? Anybody know? Ten commandments, right? And whatever other commands there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. So not only are we not to owe the government anything, we're not to owe anyone anything. David Ramsey would love that verse, wouldn't he? No debt. But Paul says that if you love others, you fulfilled the law of God. That it really boils down to just one rule. Now, we use that word love to describe so many things, don't we? Um, I love my wife. I love America. I love cherry pie. But do those all mean the same thing? What is love? Uh, a lot of people think that love is a feeling, but it's not. Love is not a feeling. We think love is a, as an ocean of emotion. We think it's a, a quiver in my liver. We think it's goosebumps on my goosebumps. That it's some kind of emotion that I can't handle, but it's not. Now, love causes feelings, but love is not a feeling. Love produces feelings, but love is not a feeling. You see, the Bible tells us that, that love is a choice. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, And over all these put on love, which binds them together. And so, love is something that you do. It's a conscious decision, Paul says, like putting on a coat before you go out in the morning. It's a commitment to care, and it's controllable, controllable who you will love and who you will not love. And Paul would say that love is a verb, it's an action, it's a deed that, that you do for somebody. 1 John chapter 3, verse 18 says, Let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. Love is something you do, it's a behavior. It's not just talk, it's a verb, it's an action. I have a Christian friend who will oftentimes say to me, you know, the Bible says to love one another, but... There's a lot of people I just don't have feelings for. How can I make myself have feelings for these people? Well, you see, he thinks love is a warm fuzzy. But let's face it, we don't have warm fuzzies for a lot of people. We, we don't like the way certain people act. We don't like the way certain people smell. We don't like the way certain people dress. We don't like the way certain people vote. And some people, let's face it, just rub us the wrong way. And most of all, we don't like people who don't like us back. But Paul says, love your neighbor as yourself. Think of how you would like to be treated and do the same. Even those who do bad to you. What do you do with a person who's irritating? What do you do with a person you're having a hard time getting along with? You look for ways to do good. You take the initiative. You offer practical help. You do them a favor. You bring them a cup of their favorite coffee. You help them on a project they're doing. You do it by building people up. 
Jesus was always doing stuff like that. One day he was uh, approached by this Roman centurion. Folks, uh, a Roman centurion was a, was a, a, a mid-level military officer in the Romans' occupying forces. You can imagine what the Jewish people thought of the military. They, they hated them. They just as soon kill them as talk to them. But Jesus not only takes the time to talk to this, this Roman, this foreigner, but, but he commends him in front of everyone. He says, I tell you, even all of Israel, I have not seen such faith as I see in this man. Paul goes on, verse 10, he says, Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Did you know that Methodists have um, rules? We have three rules. The first one is, do no harm. The second one is, do good. And the third one is, attend upon the ordinances of God. So as Methodists, we're to do no harm. And while that is simple, and while a child knows what it means, it is not easy. It demands a a radical obedience to God's leadership. And folks, that is very, very hard. Well, then lastly, Paul reminds us that when we love others, that we have fulfilled the law of God. That we are to love those people that God loves. Now, let me just ask you a quick question. Who does God love? Loves everybody. From the most powerful politicians to the marginalized of our culture and everybody in between, God loves them. And you and I are called to do the same thing. See, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and and despised, even the things that are not, to shame the things that are. And when Jesus began his ministry, he stood up in the synagogue, his hometown of Nazareth, and he announced that he was there to proclaim good news to the poor. And he followed the model that his heavenly Father had set in motion. And so he hung out with outcasts, and he touched lepers, and he elevated the status of everybody he came in contact with, sinners, women, children, everybody. And Jesus was constantly, and he was consistently reaching out to all types of people. But it got him in trouble, and sometimes it caused a scandal. But he thought it was worth the risk. And touching the world with God's love, Jesus identified with those who had little or no standing. And he still does. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells a story about the parable of the, the sheep and the goats, and And the story is simply this. He says, like it or not, we're going to be held accountable for the way that we treat people in our culture, the overlooked, the poor, the marginalized of our society. And what is even more remarkable is what Jesus implies in this parable. He suggests that he is so identified with these marginalized people that when we reach out to them, we are reaching out to him. And conversely, when we ignore them, we're ignoring Jesus himself. And so Paul ends this, this chapter really trying to get us motivated here. He, he, in fact, he uses Jesus' return as, as a motivation. He writes this, And do this, everything he's just talked about, do this, understanding the present time, that the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because your salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. For the night is nearly over, the day is almost here. Let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light.
Paul says to us, wake up, folks. We are in the end times. We never know when Jesus is going to return, and he will require an accounting of our lives. So Paul is he's kind of giving us the Boy Scout motto here, isn't he? Be prepared. Paul is encouraging us to live our best life now. So let me ask you a question. What rules are you living by? Are you living by your rules or by God's rules? And if you began to live by God's rules, how might it change things? How might it change where you're working, your view of your boss? How might it change um, your home life? How are you reflecting the righteous and self-sacrificial character of Christ? to your neighbor.